Welcome to In Focus, a deeper look into incident response in government, sponsored by IBM and Optiv. Now, here's your host, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Wally Coggins, Director of the IC Security Coordination Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Paul Morris is Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director of the Information Assurance and Cybersecurity Division at the Transportation Security Administration. Rick Driggers is Deputy Chief of Operations of the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at the Department of Homeland Security. And Ian Doyle, Executive Security Advisor at IBM Federal. And Jeff Wickman, Practice Director for Enterprise Incident Management at Optiv. Gentlemen, good to have you on today. And why don't we begin with the government people and just give us an idea of what your incident and response plan kind of looks like today with some emphasis on how things have evolved over the past months. There's certainly been enough incidents in the cybersecurity world these past few months, let alone these past few years, that would, I think, cause people to want to update their programs and kind of maybe adjust them to the approaches depending on what is out there for threats. So, Wally, why don't we start with you? Uh, good morning. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. The IC's Security Coordination Center, our mission is to coordinate the uh, incident response uh, with the, uh, for the intelligence community. Uh, we do that through um, uh, continuous two-way communication with the 17 agencies, their incident response centers that make up the intelligence community. We also work closely with our federal cybersecurity partners, uh, uh, Cybercom at DOD, and uh, my colleagues' uh, organization, NKIC, at the Department of Homeland Security. The uh, program that we have today is a dynamic environment that we're dealing with. Uh, the threat's always changing, as you said, and uh, we're continuously assessing, evaluating our incident response plan. Uh, we really have three big areas uh, that we're focusing on this year. Uh, automating the data flows between the Security Coordination Center and the agencies uh, across the community. Uh, to improve the, the speed at which we're uh, getting information on vulnerability management, safeguarding posture, uh, endpoint security, as well as incidents as they're occurring. Uh, that's an important point of emphasis for us. Uh, another area is integrating uh, functional areas that traditionally haven't have been stovepiped and haven't worked closely together. Um, a good example of that is uh, bringing counterintelligence individuals and experts in to work with our cybersecurity personnel uh, in the analytical cell. Uh, to work on the nexus of where insiders are dealing with, uh, or insiders can potentially using cyber capabilities to carry out their malicious intent. Uh, and then the final area is we're running a, a continuous exercise program, a series of tabletop exercise, war games, um, uh, live range exercises, where we're working with the community to um, you know, test uh, realistic, complex scenarios, uh, test the response to them and uh, share lessons learned, best practices, and build the partnerships uh, for when real incidents occur uh, that we can respond quickly. Okay, and uh, Paul at TSA, plenty of going on there at that agency any time. Thanks, Tom, I appreciate the, uh, the invite this morning. Uh, at, at TSA, we have a 24-7 security operations center, uh, very attuned to our mission operations across all the airports uh, in the nation. Um, and you know over 65,000 uh, uh, folks that work with us um, as well as you know trying to protect the mission and systems that provide everybody the ability to enroll in pre-check or or actually you know just get a ticket and fly so um, you know very attuned to that we learned a lot I mean this really started back when uh, you know we had the heartbeat response and we you know there's been more of these where we've we've really rallied but it's really tested us over the last year of uh, the tools we had, the processes we, or, you know, we exercised, how could we get faster, be more flexible, uh, and respond quicker. And that comes with, um, we're one of, of many components within DHS, our SOCs are, are constantly talking to each other and the DHS SOC up to, up to the NCIC, and I really look at that as an early warning system. You know, something happens, we know about it fairly quickly and it allows us to be able to respond uh, and start to marshal forces. And that, that's really something that we've started to exercise. Now to get to that, one of the things you, you, you think about cyber hygiene, when you respond quickly, you have to know what you have and where it's at. These vulnerabilities come down to a specific type of, of equipment or system, whereas it, and, and we have quite a few systems that are disparate uh, and, and managed by other folks. So, um, and plus we've introduced some new tools. Uh, the ability for us now to quickly, within five minutes, search our systems that we can see, have we been compromised with, with what's being talked about? Um, that gives us an assurance that we can quickly respond. Um, but then there's, there's, you know, you're fighting on the fact that there's 
a bunch of different screens that are sitting in front of a SOC analyst. They're, they're, they're manually moving through data and typing over here, and, and there's a lot of opportunity there for us, for us to do better. So where we're going is uh, how do we coordinate against the systems that we can't see? The owners, you know, do we have the right uh, response? Uh, you know, PPD 41 has really start to think about organizational response. Uh, do we have the right visibility across all of our portfolios of, of, of risk, vulnerability, you know, the things that the SOC needs to respond to? So that's driving how we now build things, how our tools are integrated, and then how we respond. And I want to be able to ask the question, well, what if? And if we have an infection, is that going to affect here? How can I isolate so we can continue to operate in the face of uh, a cyber attack? All right, sounds pretty comprehensive what we're getting here. And at DHS, kind of the mother of all civilian cybersecurity agencies, Rick. Yeah. So, so at the NCIC, we, we, we lead the federal organization for coordinating nationwide efforts to detect, uh, to prevent, um, uh, and respond to and recover from cyber as well as communication threats and incidents. Uh, we follow the model of the uh, National Cyber Incident Response uh, Plan, uh, which is a national approach to dealing with cyber incidents, also addresses uh, the role that the private sector, uh, state and local governments, and uh, multiple federal agencies also play uh, within uh, with responding to incidents, um, and also how the actions all fit together in, a, in an in integrated response. Um, back in September, we um, fully integrated all of our hunt and incident response capabilities into one organization within the NCIC. Um, we uh, uh, have responded uh, to, uh, to 23 incidents uh, to date um, and uh, are on track uh, now uh, with, uh, with the calendar year FY17 to do a lot more incident response. And that's not only across the, uh, the federal government um, departments and agencies if they request assistance, uh, but also state and local and, and private sector as well. Um, also, uh, um, in terms of new approaches, or not new approaches, but what are we doing differently, uh, we're certainly um, getting more in tune with the intelligence community uh, so that we can understand what the threat landscape looks like so that we can be prepared. Uh, we're also working more closely with private sector IT security firms and want to continue uh, that relationship. Um, the most important uh, piece of the NCIC and what we do is our partnerships, not only with federal departments and agencies, but also state and local and private sector. Uh, and the ability to share information, the ability to have a trusted uh, partnership and relationship with those entities uh, so that we can support them and we can leverage the capabilities and the service offerings uh, that we have to mitigate and to recover from security incidents or cybersecurity incidents. And just let me ask you a follow-up on those partnerships. How much do state and local agencies and governments feed into all this? Are they under the same kind of siege that sometimes it seems like the federal government is under? Uh, so certainly um, I don't know that it's to the uh, to the level, but certainly they uh, they have their own cybersecurity issues at the state and local level. Um, they probably have some resource issues as well being able to respond to those. Um, so we certainly provide support to them when asked. Um, we also, uh, a lot of the state and local communities are taking part of our, our cyber hygiene, which is, a, which is an IP scanning uh, um, program that we have. Uh, we have over 500 entities across the federal government, private sector, and state and local government that are taking um, advantage of the uh, cyber hygiene program that we have, uh, which offers, um, like I said earlier, IP scanning and provides um, reports weekly uh, out to those entities of what their uh, security and vulnerability issues are. Okay, and uh, Jeff, I wanted to ask you, you know, looking across government, uh, you know, our main subject today is incident and response. You have to know you have an incident before you can respond, and given the dwell times and the stealthiness of some of these things, what's your sense of how government is coming along with respect to incident detection? And then, then the response that rolls out from that. Yeah, I think the I think the government is doing a a, a bang up job. Uh, these gentlemen have I highlighted all of the really critical components to uh, effectively responding to an incident. Um, you have to know what's in your environment um, and how to respond to it. Everybody needs to know the processes, um, and, and that's really the most important part in dealing with an incident is being really being prepared. Um, and that's one of the things that we all see stepping into the commercial sector is where a lot of failures start to occur is they believe they understand what their um, processes are. Uh, however, they don't test them adequately or enough. Um, and that's where they start getting, feeling the burn. 
All right, so the earlier up in the chain of kill, I guess, that yeah. you're aware and have plans, the better are you will be down downstream when something happens. Okay, and IBM has been working on this since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. What's what's new? What's what, what are the what do things look like now versus I would say six months ago? Sure. I think uh, there's certainly an evolution process. So we talked a little bit about, you know, there are certain things to prevent cybersecurity incidents, and there are certain things to detect them, maybe even advanced detection. But now we're really seeing the pendulum swing towards more increased response actions. So it's one thing to say, I have things that can prevent certain things happening. I can find my assets. I can detect things. But how do I bridge that gap between what a SOC analyst is doing to do some research with, with an incident handler to actually take action? And we're trying to introduce not just linear automation from making sure that if something, if something happens, there is a definitive action to take place, but what is that automated orchestration? So workflows of processes, not just technology, but people and processes themselves. So this way, again, I think we were mentioned earlier, how can we shorten the uh, return cycle of not just finding an incident, but then taking the effective action to remediate it? And uh, is, is attribution part of that process? Absolutely. I mean, you can't shoot back, you know, in this sense, but attribution is just checking things and sure and attribution so you know where it's where a particular cybersecurity event or offense is coming from so you know what particular remediation actions are probably the best suited for that type of uh, incident per se and um, I wanted to also go through the government one more time and talk about some of the routine jobs uh, I mean since since there has been continuous monitoring and this goes back now close to I think 10 years since it became a mandate for federal agencies and early on, continuous monitoring was, well, let's find out what's patched and what's not patched. How are we on the automation scale of things like patch management? Old issue predates continuous monitoring, really, if truth be told. Uh, and, and other routine types of tasks that might be early on in that kill chain for cybersecurity. Automation's been a, a point of emphasis for the Security Coordination Center and the community as a whole for some time now, as, as you said. Um, we're seeing it in the areas of, of vulnerability management, um, patch management, uh, incident response, um, and, and where we're getting into is the sharing of indicators and threats and things like that uh, is where we're moving forward. Uh, but, but you really have to automate these days um, in this time when it's really hard to attract and retain uh, cybersecurity professionals. Um, automation is a force multiplier. It, it lets you do more with the resources that you have. Uh, it lets you focus them, prioritize them on the real important threats and hopefully resolve without uh, human intervention the more benign technical issues and, and false positives and things like that that are always occurring. Is it possible to automate patch management? I mean, that's, I mean, patch management was at the heart of the WannaCry vulnerability for many organizations. Uh, certainly, uh, that, that's a capability that we've, we've seen uh, deployed extensively throughout the intelligence community. Okay, and is that the case at TSA? Um, I, really, I'm not in a hurry to have a self-inflicted denial of disservice um, on a patch that went wrong. I mean, we, we really looked at uh, how, do, uh, you know, how do we improve our cyber hygiene in, in those regards. But um, you know there are certain vendors where a patch will come out, it'll go in, and nothing will break. We've got history, history shows that, that that. So we've shortened those cycle times of testing. And but there are others that there's you know you never know if you're going to have something that'll break a mission application, that'll shut something down that we need vital at an airport or or somewhere. So uh, we take that time. I think that uh, there's opportunities there for for orchestration. Uh, in some cases, uh, you're never going to. I I think you'll never take out a human out of some of these. These, these critical processes when we're, we're supporting these uh, mission needs. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it, it comes down to we just need to be flexible and have data available to make decisions. Um, and if we can shorten the amount of time that the folks that are doing that hard work are spent doing menial tasks, mm -hmm. you know, um, and have, and it's just the same problem we had in the intelligence community back in, you know, 15 years ago. How can we move those folks from doing 80% admin and 20% real thinking and flip that, so that's what we're trying to do. How, how can I get my SOC analyst really thinking about the hard problems and focus on the priorities instead of doing you know, all of that work? So that's that, I think that's where the orchestration uh, piece will really lead us. Yeah, that's an important thing you say, that often patch, and this goes back to the early dawn of operating systems, when you would upgrade, then your peripherals wouldn't work, or this wouldn't work, or your database access would be broken, whatever the case might be. And so at a given 
location at TSA, there are a lot of systems running. Do you do anything like maintain a model system or a sample system that you can try things on in a closed environment, then know that it works, and then send it out to all the locations? Absolutely. We have, we have uh, comprehensive test environments that, that replicate everything that we have. Uh, and whether it's an application upgrade or, or a security fix or a patch, uh, those things are, are tested. Um, but again, if you, if you think about how you know, Patch Tuesday rolls around you know, once, a, once a month from Microsoft, you, know, you, you really want to get in as soon as you can, but that goes through testing of each one of those, those systems and those test environments, and then, then it's a, max, uh, a focus on the orchestration of people and process, and you have bureaucracy getting in the way. Um, that will lead you to quickly get that, and that's, uh, that, I think that's where we're winning. You just don't want a patch to roll in and all of a sudden the phone scanners at every little counter don't work or something. Absolutely, you can't have that. I can imagine that could be an, an unfun situation for everybody involved. And at the end kick, is that something that you explore, the whole, you know, what is it that's, you know, it's just starting with routine things, let alone the higher level activities, but that sure, can be cleared away? Sure. At the NKIC, we've certainly automated some aspects of our, of our uh, vulnerability management and, and coordination process. We, we've certainly done that through the cyber hygiene program uh, where we do the IP scanning. That's fully automated to include the reporting that comes, the reports that go out every week. Um, we've automated the uh, um, automated indicator uh, sharing uh, where we can um, actually get threat indicator uh, information from the private sector and anonymize that, that information and then push that out more broadly um, across uh, our partnership um, um, framework. We also um, um, have automated a couple of other um, ideas, where not ideas, but systems where we are uh, um, pushing indicators um, and signatures and things like that through our suite of Einstein tools and continuous di diagnostics and monitoring. Um, but, but I don't want to I don't want to overlook um, the importance and the criticality of the actual individual analyst in that process. Um, automation is great, the technology, the processes to be more efficient, to be more effective, uh, but the analyst um, is, is critical in that because uh, they can pull the malware apart, they can uh, tweak the signatures to make sure that they're tuned uh, the right way um, and get them in the process. And that is something that's happening continuously uh, in the NKIC. We have a bank of analysts uh, that are constantly going through um, and looking at malware, looking at how to develop new signatures and new indicators of compromise and then sharing that out more broadly. And I want to go back to the incident response piece. When we do an incident response and we actually learn what happened and we mitigate and recover a network, we take the information from that, we anonymize that, we develop signatures and indicators and we push that out more broadly so that what we've learned at a particular facility or asset can be leveraged by other departments and agencies or private sector and state and local. Okay, good place to take a short break on, which we will do now. Our guests today are Jeff Wickman, Practice Director for Enterprise Incident Management at Optiv. Ian Doyle is Executive Security Advisor at IBM Federal. Rick Dick Griggers is Deputy Chief of Operations at the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at Homeland Security. Paul Morris is Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director for Information Assurance and Cybersecurity Division at the Transportation Security Administration. And Wally Coggins, Director of the IC Security Coordination Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is Instant Response in Government, sponsored by Optiv and IBM, here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Do you want to reduce your agency's time to respond to threats by 50 to 90 percent? The combined power of Optiv's incident response solutions with the award-winning IBM Resilient Incident Response Platform arms your agency with battle-tested IR tools that you need to successfully manage and mitigate today's increasingly complex threats fast. Empower your agency to thrive in the face of cyber attacks by coordinating your people, process, and technology for the right response every time with Optiv and IBM Resilient. Schedule a demo today at ResilientSystems.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Incident Response in Government, sponsored by Optiv and IBM here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. My guests today are Wally Coggins, Director of the IC Security Coordination Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Paul Morris is Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director for Information Assurance and Cybersecurity Division at TSA. 
Rick Driggers is Deputy Chief of Operations at the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, the NCIC, at Homeland Security. Ian Doyle is Executive Security Advisor at IBM Federal. And Jeff Wickman is Practice Director for Enterprise Incident Management at Optiv. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And continuing on that idea from the last segment of what do you automate first, uh, the sense I'm getting is that what seems obvious, like patch management, may not be the best candidate for complete automation because of the complexities of a software that seem to get worse with every generation and not better. But yet, information flows or sharing of information or uh, results of analysis, maybe that can be automated in some way. So I'd like to get the industry perspective on what you feel uh, works best. Jeff, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, so sharing of information uh, is e probably the easiest and safest item that you can automate. Um, you can also automate um, some of your response capabilities. Depending upon your knowledge of your environment and your assets that are out there, uh, that is one of the items that you can um, patch and patch safely. Um, but you have to make sure that you can identify your critical systems that just cannot take a failed patch and have to have that more of a manual touch. Um, but IOC sharing is probably the most important and I think probably one of the areas that um, as the industry as a whole needs to get better at. And what about dashboards? I mean, I think there's yet another dashboard about to be under construction in the federal government, you know, under the Trump administration's new cybersecurity regime, a slight, I guess, advance of what came before that. And so do dashboards, I mean, if there's too many dashboards, have you defeated the purpose of that piece of automation? Dashboards all have their their place. Um, when you get to the dashboard level, you're looking at more of an ex executive overview rather than having some really good details and data that you know an analyst or someone who who needs to make decisions on a, a potential threat. Um, dashboards have their place, um, but mostly for the executive levels, in my opinion. In a SOC would not be looking at dashboards. They would be looking at the data that eventually get fed to the dashboard. In most cases, I would say yes. They're going to have that visibility into the dashboard just so that they can see if there's an uptick in a specific type of threat or a specific type of indicator. Um, but in most cases, I would, th I would think that the executive levels are going to have more of an interest in that. Sure. And uh, Ian, your view on, on the whole automation chain and where you break it and where you put it together. Certainly. So I think there's, uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, you can automate um, a lot of different technologies, um, but then again, that's where automation comes in from a technology standpoint. And I think really what we're trying to drive towards and we're seeing industry driving towards is that the orchestration piece that we talked about before of that people and process because, you know, a technology can be procured, but you can't necessarily always buy readily people or the processes that they've developed over the course of time. So how can we help pivot towards orchestrating those processes and what the people are doing augmented by that automation with technology and then getting once again to that response type of uh, action uh, based on what we find. Is there a difference between orchestration and automation? Is orchestration the bringing together of subroutines that are already automated or how do, you, how do you explain that one? Yeah, certainly. So I would say that automation is certainly a subset of orchestration. Um, like I was saying, you could, you know, a very simple example, you know, you're in a car, you see the green light turn, you, you step on the gas. Okay, there's a, uh, an automation of what's happening. But are you thinking from an orchestration standpoint is that, you know, ambulance coming down the road that, well, you can't take that automated action because you, there's another sub-process, there's a, a safety pr process going on that you have to stop and wait for. So orchestration is that, that next step above what automation entails with technology. And so let me ask some of the government people, do you work, who do you work with? I mean, how, how does orchestration processes happen? It sounds like you need the IT staff that's running the systems that are under, under pressure here. Uh, Rick? So, so I think the orchestration is really the optimization of whatever process you're trying to automate. Uh, the people that are engaged in that process because there's inevitably going to be some type of manual thing that has to happen as well as the technology or the platform or system that you're trying to use to either do response or some other type of activity. I think the optimization of those is in my mind what orchestration is um, and finding the fine line between those uh, to make sure that um, you know we're not sending out broken patches or we're not an automating an analytical process that um, 
doesn't get into the analytical rigor to find the critical thing, uh, indicator signature, fine tuning it, the attenuation, whatever that is that you need when you're when you're going to be doing this cybersecurity world. The the adversary is constantly um, moving to new TTPs or moving to new tactics or new, moving to new approaches, um, and you just can't automate. Um, fully, in my mind, or put a process in place um, without a human being being in the middle of that that's going to be able to think um, and, and change those things. And I think the orchestration piece is bringing all three of those things together, but evolving those uh, so that you're prepared to meet the adversary uh, and defeat them. Someday maybe artificial intelligence will work here, but that's a long way off, I imagine. It is. Paul, your thoughts? I, I, you know, Rick's, Rick's got it on the head here with, you know, the, the opportunity here you know, when we talk about automation is, is we can't just sit back and think the Starship Enterprise is going to take care of itself um, because automation implies that we're very certain that the data we receive is absolutely perfect. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty in what we do. So, um, but they, we can focus on, and this is really, a, I think, at a bigger level of, of how do we make the SOC analyst and that team more effective is that when you break it down and you think about, well, they've got to go find things. Where is it? What is it? How, how is it, you know, is it vulnerable to what we're doing here? And then I've got to maybe reach out, grab the memory from the box and start doing some initial forensics. I've got to create a take. There's a lot of opportunity here to kind of bring those down. And then, you, then you're faced with, you've got how many 20 different systems that don't talk to each other with different screens. Um, that they're still communicating with email and phone to really coordinate, uh, you know, do it. And that really comes down to the skill set of the folks. So that's driving how we acquire things. Um, you know, how do we reduce the number of screens? How can I somehow kick off something that'll do some of those things automatically so they quickly move into what does it mean? What are my steps? And, and, uh, and make that role. So we can automate some of these, these processes, but it really comes down to the strength of the, of the training uh, and those processes we have in place, and then who can we call and, and make those decisions. Uh, one of the biggest pieces here is there's a ton of noise, and the noise is you know, you're fighting every day a constant barrage, but some of these need to pop out quickly and reach up to the executive level so we can start taking action as a department together, uh, you know, and marshal the sources. So there's a lot of opportunity there, and I think it's in the orchestration of how we do our business every day. Interesting, and at the ODNI, I mean, that's that's kind of the stock and trade, is feeding up to, so that analysts are effective, and I guess that translates over to the cyberspace, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where we sit, we're, we're a tier zero organization, which means we, we are orchestrating every day the um, response uh, across the community. Uh, we look at orchestration as making sure that uh, there's shared situation awareness. Um, as threats are identified, particular exploits are being used uh, against uh, systems, uh, making sure that the mitigations are out rapidly and that the defensive measures are in place. And when something like the WannaCry occurred, to know very quickly uh, that that particular exploit had been patched uh, and that you were prepared for that um, was, was a really important example of uh, the importance of the orchestration. Okay, Jeff, I wanted to ask you, uh, with respect to agencies and any organization that has this rapidly multiplying set of tools for cybersecurity, and the big cry you always hear is, how can we get the tools to work together or maybe not have so many? As, as Paul said, it affects acquisition at some point, that you don't need so many. How, how can, is, is, it, is it possible to apply orchestration, automation to the way tools integrate to one another at some lower level in all of this? I think vendors are getting better at um, enabling us for that, um, releasing APIs and having things open for the, for the um, consultants and the individuals within organizations to decide how systems are going to talk together uh, in a safe and efficient manner. Um, the, and, and stepping back a little bit though is um, making sure that uh, for, you know, from and my ha my hat goes on for incident response. Um, not only from a, a threat level of an attack, but what happens when your automation and orchestration fails, or what happens when your IR plan fails? You have to be prepared for those types of situations, um, and you have to have good people. You have to have people that you can trust that you know how to respond, or who are going to know how to respond. So, Ian, sounds like you need a black box as long as it has a glass top and yeah. someone that knows how to unlock it. Well, I think that there's certainly, um, I agree with what Jeff's saying, that the open integrations, um, it's, it's no longer a time of proprietary uh, interfaces. Uh, yes, they still do exist, but um, 
companies, uh, organizations are trying to move towards that open integration, as we you know, previously said with Paul, that there are a number of systems, and there are a number of systems per you know, facet within cybersecurity. Within, you know, you look at your typical SOC, you have your net defense watch, you have your intel watch, you have you know, your incident handlers, so on and so forth, but yet they're all using different capabilities, maybe different processes, so what are we trying to do to help that? And integration is certainly um, a key to that, and I think industry knows that. So you'll see a lot of these black boxes, you know, with maximizing what integration can take place. Because the human capital or the human talent question has come up several times, and, and also this idea of them needing flexibility and analytical skill and not overly automated. You know, when you read car reviews, to make an analogy, one of the worst things they can say about a car, it's so refined that it feels numb to drive. You know, so somewhere there's, you know, there's a range between a race car, which you feel everything, and a Cadillac or something where you feel nothing. I get the sense in cybersecurity you need to leave some feel for the reality of the situation to those operators. Comments? Absolutely. Um, the, uh, the best thing that the, the tools can do, the automation can do, is, is focus them, prioritize what they need to work on, uh, on the real critical threats, and, and hopefully resolve without human uh, intervention the more benign activities and, and the false positives, things like that. Absolutely. I also think that the, um, you know, the topology of every network is different. And so when you respond to an incident and you actually get on site and you start looking around, um, you know, the team, uh, you know, a, a separate team could be responding to the same threat uh, at a different facility and they're going to take different actions because the topology of the network is different, uh, the endpoints are different, um, potentially the way that the adversary got access is different. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, organic response team or organic security assets of a particular facility are different. Um, and so the, the, the human being in that play is, is very, very important. How just curious, how does Einstein play into the automation question? Because Einstein itself is not one single thing, right? It's not a not a appliance. It's a, it's a set of capabilities, correct? Sure. So there's a, there's a suite of Einstein tools. Uh, we've got Einstein One, which is really monitoring the flow of network traffic um, that transits to and from federal um, executive departments and agencies. Um, in technical terms, you know, Einstein One really records and analyzes net flow uh, records. Um, Einstein Two identifies malicious uh, or potentially harmful computer network activity uh, in the federal government departments and agencies uh, with regards to network traffic uh, on specific known signatures. Um, and then Einstein 3 allows uh, DHS to both detect as well uh, detect cyber attacks targeting uh, departments and agency networks uh, and actively uh, preventing potential compromises. So our analysts are constantly um, you know, developing signatures and indicators and pushing those and deploying those out through the suite of Einstein tools uh, depending on what we learn from either the private sector because they've shared threat indicators with us or potentially the intelligence community or, or even um, our international partners. So Einstein is not, you don't have an appliance in Iraq with the label Einstein on it. So if there's Einstein, it's really an integrated set of tools that run somewhere. Yes. Does it run in the cloud or does it run on a government data center? It's, uh, <laughs> I believe it runs on a federal data center. Probably hope it does. And it's so for definitely a federal something. I don't know if it's a cloud or a data it's center. It's a federal something. <laughs> or maybe it's in the intelligence community somewhere. And it, it, you're, you're a defense-related agency. And so what, what is, is there interaction at that level, say, what Einstein is learning with what ODNI is learning and maybe um, even defense is learning? There, there's extensive collaboration and coordination uh, between the, um, the, the classified work that's going on in the intelligence community and, and the work that DHS is doing with the private sector and the rest of government. Uh, th there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that the, the right signatures and indicators are being shared. Uh, we're currently doing that for the intelligence community and then we collaborate with our partners in DHS and Cybercom uh, to make sure that information is getting shared at, at all levels of uh, the networks and classifications. And do the, does the profile or whatever information you can gather on the latest in insider threats, is that part of all of this analysis chain too? Uh, sure. I mean, we, we've got to uh, get a handle on building the tools that um, allow us to, to detect malicious insider uh, threats and capabilities and what they're potentially doing, um, uh, adverse activities on the networks and things like that. Those things are, are in development and being deployed uh, to, to a great extent these yeah, days. Yeah, because you're looking for a slightly different thing on the insider front than you are on the external threat. 
in general. Is that correct, Paul? You're not. It, it's it's the same data set. I mean, if you know all the data that's flowing on your network, you know, you start with the uh, theory that there's something wrong here. There's data moving where it shouldn't. Now, is that a person or is that somebody that's acting on the outside? It could go either way. So that's a part of your incident response from that perspective of saying, you know, these things shouldn't be happening at night or on the weekend in these places. Um, and in that incident response, well, maybe this is more something that's looked like it's inside the fence and you pass it to those folks who then have access to the same tools and the same data and that they take a, a different focus, you know, partnered with law enforcement and, and investigations to kind of go in that direction. So, yeah, it, it, it's closely intertwined. All right, on that note, we're going to take a short break here. Uh, my guests today are Paul Morris. He's Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director for Information Assurance at the Cybersecurity Division at the Transportation Security Administration. Rick Driggers is the Deputy Chief of Operations at the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at Homeland Security. Ian Doyle is Executive Security Advisor at IBM Federal. Jeff Wickman is Practice Director for Enterprise Incident Management at Optiv. And Wally Coggins is Director of the IC Security Coordination Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is Incident Response in Government, sponsored by Optiv and IBM, here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Do you want to reduce your agency's time to respond to threats by 50 to 90 percent? The combined power of Optiv's incident response solutions with the award-winning IBM Resilient Incident Response Platform arms your agency with battle-tested IR tools that you need to successfully manage and mitigate today's increasingly complex threats fast. Empower your agency to thrive in the face of cyber attacks by coordinating your people, process, and technology for the right response every time with Optiv and IBM Resilient. Schedule a demo today at ResilientSystems.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Incident Response in Government, sponsored by Optiv and IBM, here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. My guest today, Wally Coggins, Director of the IC Security Coordination Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Paul Morris is Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Director of the Information Assurance and Cybersecurity Division at the Transportation Security Administration. Rick Driggers is the Deputy Chief of Operations at the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at Homeland Security. Ian Doyle is Executive Security Advisor at IBM Federal. And Jeff Wickman is Practice Director for Enterprise Incident Management at Optiv. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And I want to talk about the issue of resilience because the whole point in many ways for federal cybersecurity is not so much to stop the world from flopping at our doors so much as to be able to come back and keep going when it does. And that's really what resilience is all about. So how can this idea of orchestration of automated processes in cybersecurity help that bigger issue of, of uh, resilience? Anyone want to grab that one? I'll start. Um, it, right now we're, we're in the midst of moving um, quickly to cloud environments, um, as you can imagine. Uh, and as we, as we were going through some design in the last couple of weeks, I had yesterday a very senior engineer on our team say, we would not have done this unless we weren't thinking about resilience or how we could respond and support you in the SOC. Um, and it really comes down to, you know, we have these tools and we talked about they're owned by different organizations, they're there for a different reason. But as we bring those together to say who needs what when, um, and it all goes down to can we continue to fight and do our job during an ongoing cyber attack, um, and that's a different conversation than do you, do you have disaster recovery. Um, so that gets into um, bringing teams together, bringing tools together. Uh, and how we build things. Um, so it, it's having, a, I think, a big change on the way we meet these uh, um, these difficult times, and, and it meets that uh, that story of, you know, if every window and door in your house had a different lock and alarm, mm -hmm. and somebody else had all the keys, and you put somebody in there to go fight it, how do you figure they could do that? Well, that really gets into how you do that all together, and that's what orchestration, I think, that, that keep us up and running, and then quickly return uh, for things that just kind of come off. So that takes the whole idea beyond the database transaction crash model where you had recovery point objective and recovery time objective and all these kinds of metrics which don't really work very well in an operational environment where you, you have people there on the front line of real danger. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, 
you, you have to think about the, as we get into design, we talk about, uh, you know, system authorizations of what is that a system individual response plan? If it went down, if you lost, could you quickly restore that data? Could you quickly get that back up? You start looking for different re uh, requirements within, you know, how the, the build uh, mm -hmm. and design. And then again, we go back and test and audit those things to make sure that they can recover quickly. Um, you're exactly right. It's, it's a different conversation being driven by what happens if we were breached? What happens if you're under attack? And that really starts to define the behavior of the folks that are doing all of those pieces. Yeah, I completely agree with Paul, and I think, you know, additionally, I think from uh, a mission standpoint, sometimes uh, really the importance of resilience is take, uh, you know, our colleagues in intelligence or, or forensics, for example, that sometimes the appropriate action is to not take any action because you're trying to collect additional information to see what needs to be done in the future. So in order to do that, you need to have that resilience in place so it, operations can still keep running, that collection can still keep happening, so this way, you know, in the future, you you set yourself up for what needs to happen. From the NCIC perspective, I'll, I'll, I'll lift it up a little bit, um, looking at critical infrastructure protection and resilience across multiple different sectors. If you're looking at the National Infrastructure Protection Plan, 16 uh, critical infrastructure sectors. Um, I, think, I think our program's resilience underpins all of them. Uh, we have a national exercise uh, program, cybersecurity exercise program, uh, working with state and locals, working with departments and agencies, international partners, so that we can enhance the cybersecurity posture of those particular state and local entities. We can provide them recommendations. We can help them develop incident response plans and things of that nature. Um, uh, we also have our uh, national cybersecurity uh, and uh, technical services program, which runs our cyber hygiene program that I talked about earlier, but they also do risk and vulnerability assessments. Um, in the private sector, state and local departments and agencies, and they also do uh, high value asset assessments. Um, and, then, and then the information sharing uh, that we do. Uh, we put out products out to the public. We put out products that are out to the public, but a, um, a certain subset of that public. Uh, so we have uh, traffic light protocol, white, amber, green, red. Um, and we share those, that information so that we can enable network defenders uh, to make their networks, make their ecosystem uh, certainly more resilient uh, and to raise the level of their cybersecurity uh, posture uh, towards, um, you know, multiple different threats. All right. Other comments on resiliency? Sure, Wally. In, in the intelligence community, the um, resilience issue has really been driving us to de defense in depth, um, you know, getting beyond just endpoint security, uh, looking at net flows and, and uh, you know, individual users and things like that. Um, the other area is um, redundancy, making sure that you've got the redundancy to provide that resiliency when, when areas are impacted by uh, cyber events. Uh, and, then, and then getting at uh, some of the points my colleagues are making, the um, collaboration between uh, different organizations, uh, making sure that the situational awareness is there, that information is being shared across, uh, whether it's mitigations, defensive measures, things like that, uh, to increase the response and prevent uh, activity from spilling over. Jeff, is that something that, I mean, customers say that it's Absolutely. top of their mind? The entire end game for everything that we really do is to maintain our environments. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the whole gist of um, the automation orchestration protection IR um, is to make sure that we can survive a specific type of attack. Um, as we continue, we learn more about different attacks and attackers are going to always adapt. So it, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. No one's ever going to be in front all the time. There's going to be a breach and being prepared for it, that's the tough part. And, and hopefully that um, allows us to um, be able to respond um, effectively when, an, uh, when a breach is successful. All right, let's talk about people because that's come up several times in the discussion heretofore. And uh, the, I guess the types of people, the education and training levels that we need in cybersecurity have really evolved a lot in the last couple of years. So how can, uh, in the age of orchestration, then there are certain jobs you don't need, just like you, know, you don't need people. At one time, people had to load tapes on mainframes and thread tape heads and that kind of thing. Those jobs all went away. I think the same thing is true in cyber of the software job. So let's talk about a little bit what, what you need for human capital and talent in the orchestrated age, if you will. Uh, the, the folks that we need are, are what we call low-density, high-demand individuals. Um, they have the expertise in, in cybersecurity, 
understand the networks, understand the tools and capabilities that are out there, and are constantly learning because the, the threat is always evolving. It's moving really fast. Um, and, and as the tools uh, take, take some of the activity away, the, you know, the more uh, mundane activity and responses, um, some of the things that we do to keep those folks engaged are um, you know, developing the uh, working group and technical exchanges that we run throughout the community. Um, we also have them constantly evaluating the tools that we're running today versus what's available uh, to the community and um, helping with the deployment of those when decisions are made to move to the next and, and best thing. Uh, and also um, conducting open source research, uh, trying to stay ahead of the threat and as it's evolving, uh, making sure that we're prepared uh, as a new exploits are being used in the, in the wild. And then finally, um, when we run our exercise programs, uh, we use those individuals to help develop realistic, complex scenarios that will really test the community and help them uh, be prepared for major incidents when they occur. It's almost as if there's a collegiate or academic quality to some of this work. Yes. Yes. So, so, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit. I absolutely agree with Wally. Low density, high demand. There's absolutely no, no doubt about it. Um, these, uh, these individuals have unique skills. Uh, they're highly sought after, uh, not only across the departments and, uh, and agencies within the federal government, but also the private sector. Um, and so, um, you know, we have a, we have a, um, a human resource system uh, in the federal government that's slightly antiquated to be able to recruit, retain, um, and, um, and incentivize uh, these particular individuals to, to, to stay. So uh, I know with the Department of Homeland Security, our chief human capital officer is, is trying to get very innovative and in, in, in putting in place uh, new incentives uh, um, uh, program as well as a new personnel system to be able to recruit and retain uh, this type of talent. Um, but um, as Wally said, um, you've, you've got to keep them engaged. You've got to keep them tied to the mission. Uh, you've got to keep them excited. Um, you've got to give them opportunities to, to, to do training uh, and to grow professionally uh, and to uh, not um, have them stagnate in a particular job, uh, but move them around and find opportunities within your organization or within other parts uh, of other organizations. In the time we have left, I want to get to a really important point here, too, and that is in some of the new cybersecurity and IT strategy policies that have come with the new administration, there has been a coupling or bridging of the idea of systems modernization, which is widely acknowledged to be a challenge for the federal government, and getting better cybersecurity uh, through modernized systems. So maybe talk about the how that can actually happen, uh, where is it that modernization leads to better cyber, or can better cyber and orchestration lead to more efficient ways to modernization? I'd say it's probably a little bit of both. Um, and I think the modernization piece ties directly back to what we were talking to with uh, the people aspect of it. Because if you have technologies and you have orchestration in place, then it's not so much a matter of um, of not having the right people or enough people, but it's a matter of what can you do to help enable those expertise that you do have and helping elevate their uh, expertise levels based on orchestration processes to actually allow them to do typically what a, a tier one analyst would be doing now, elevating them to a tier two because they have some of that orchestration in place that can uh, do additional things and point them in the right directions quicker than, than what you know, maybe a junior analyst would have been comfortable doing. Yeah, that's that low density, high demand type of idea. I think that um, security has to be at the at, at the front of the line uh, with regards to IT modernization. Um, I think that they have to go hand in hand. Uh, you can't do one without the other. Um, security can't be an afterthought. Um, it's got to be built in. So security by design, uh, we talk about that in the physical world. Um, I think that IT modernization or even um, not even just IT modernization as a whole, but even just software updates and things like that that you're making to your systems and moving to new operating systems, security has to be um, a major component of that thought process and planning. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, let's talk about ODNI and the whole IC. I mean, probably has state-of-the-art systems, but maybe some old legacy systems too. Um, the IC has been um, undertaking for several years now a, a modernization program to move to shared uh, enterprise infrastructure, uh, modern cloud technologies, um, common desktops, and things like that. Um, and that's clearly been an opportunity for us to uh, improve the security game across the board as these capabilities roll out. Um, th they give you an opportunity to know what's being deployed, to deploy modern uh, capabilities and technologies where with a lot of the legacy systems that are out there, it, it's hard to know um, what state they're in, 
a lot of them are sitting under somebody's desk perhaps um, with, without any real understanding of, of do they have the current patching and, and things like that going on. So IT modernization is, is a great opportunity to address the security issue. I mean, Jeff does uh, asset discovery and the automation of that. It's a big issue just for getting a baseline, but I imagine that also aids that whole idea of making sure that things are secure and then also telling you what it is, hey, how long has that been there exactly. for modernizing? It gives you an idea of your, uh, the, you know, the assets that are out there and vulnerabilities that you may be facing. Um, it can expedite the removal of those devices from an environment um, or at least uh, set up some type of control around it. If it's something that's critical and can't be updated, can't be um, patched, can't be you know released, you can isolate it in other manners to so that you can have some so, some sort of resiliency within that system. Stepping back to what everybody has really said is it's going we're going back. We've got to have security from the start. Um, and you know if you're using third parties to develop software systems. I mean, it really comes down to putting it into contracts that they have to take those things seriously um, and deploy patches. We're doing a, an investigation with a company right now and they're actually being told by their vendors, we're not patching that. Even though it's decimating this network, they're not patching it. So they've got to re-architect their entire network just to protect themselves for that small issue. Wow, so we've covered a lot of ground today, and I think that's about all the time we have, but I want to thank today's guests for a really interesting discussion and some good points that uh, hopefully people listening in can build on. So let me thank those guests. Wally Coggins is director of the IC Security Coordination Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Paul Morris is chief information security officer and executive director of Information Insurance and Cybersecurity Division at the Transportation Security Administration. Richard Driggers is Deputy Chief of Operations at the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at the Department of Homeland Security. Ian Doyle is Executive Security Advisor at IBM Federal. And Jeff Wickman, Practice Director for Enterprise Incident Management at Optiv. I'm Tom Temin, Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Optiv IBM. Thank you for listening to In Focus, a deeper look into incident response and government, sponsored by IBM and Optive on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire program can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search In Focus.